Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Today, my guest is Dr. Thomas Bagger, Ambassador of Federal Republic of Germany to Poland. Welcome to the podcast, Ambassador. Thank you, Leszek. It's a pleasure to be here. Ambassador, you have arrived recently, about three months ago, to Poland, and we are very happy that uh, not so long ago you have found time to visit Łódź on the occasion of Freedom Games, yet you arrived in a very particular time in a German-Polish relationship. It seems most strange since the fall of communism. How would you define the success of your mission? Well, I think uh, the, the Polish-German relationship is a is a long and complex one. It uh, it carries a lot of history uh, on both sides, and that history is always part of our uh, interaction, part of our reality. But I think uh, you know the the real measure of success is to which degree we can uh, we can realize the great potential that this relationship has in all its various dimensions political, security, energy, economic, cultural, uh, youth exchange, city partnerships. There's so much that's going on, but I think in this world of upheaval and geopolitical change, uh, we also have to take a fresh look and and see what is the potential for tomorrow. And, and that will be my job and my task here for the next few years. It seems that the, the most divisive issue now is the government's claim that Germany should pay Poland compensation for the war. And these numbers are staggering at 1.3 trillion dollars. And what could be surprising for, for people outside Poland uh, who, who didn't follow this issue closely is that all, almost all political forces supported this, this motion in Parliament. And the federal government position is that this issue was settled in the 1950s. But then Poland is the kind of argument on the government side, wasn't even an independent country. So this seems that this issue could stay with us for, for, for much longer, even after the elections. And do you think there's any room for maneuver on the German side on, on this issue? Well, I think, uh, yeah, as I said, history uh, will always be part of our relationship, so it will stay with us. Um, but uh, the, the issue of... Uh, the war of occupation, destruction of Poland uh, by uh, Germany during the Nazi years, um, it, has, it has a legal dimension, it has a moral dimension, um, it, uh, it, it also has sort of a, a, a human and, and a practical, pragmatic dimension. And, and I think we need to be aware of what happened, we need to be aware of Germany's continuing responsibility, but we should not lose sight of the long process of reconciliation and cooperation that is already um, behind us. Um, it started in the 1960s, um, it, uh, it accelerated certainly after the fall of the Iron Curtain, we signed a treaty of good neighborhood and cooperation more than 30 years ago. Uh, we created a German-Polish youth office that uh, does a lot of exchanges. Poland is today integrated in the European Union and in NATO. So we've built a European political order in which uh, Germany and Poland are, are good neighbors. And that is what guides our relationship. So I think on the legal dimension of reparations, the German position is very clear. 
uh, this is uh, something that 80 years ago is is simply sort of no no longer uh, an issue. It's it's legally closed. It's politically we have moved on, um, but morally. And in the human dimension, I think it is absolutely clear that um, this process of reconciliation and of acknowledgement would happen is never finished. That is why we continue to talk about it. That is why we continue to commemorate. That is why we will continue to think how we can sort of turn that rhetoric of reconciliation also into practical action. And, uh, and that will not end. I'm, uh, but, um, but again, given everything that happens around us, um, I think it is not exactly a foreign policy logic uh, that leads um, the Polish government or Polish political parties to discuss this issue now. It, if there is a logic, it's not a foreign policy logic, and it's not a logic of uh, making the German-Polish neighborhood and partnership uh, better. Uh, this is being done for other reasons, um, and we'll have to we'll have to deal with that. And and do you think that uh, well, federal government might react differently in the future to further claims and further you know criticism because it's not the only thing that is dividing Poland and Germany. There's a lot of anti-German propaganda well spread by well actually the the government officials and germany was i think very hesitant very patient so far to to, to respond but I, I suppose that for public opinion in, in germany it might be the case that uh, well it, it would require the reaction do you think that that it is possible that if this situation persists the the relationship on the german side might also change and germany would react or see the kind of partnership with Poland in very different, uh, we'll see in a very different light? You know, one of the uh, one of the good things about becoming German ambassador uh, to Poland is that uh, you you work in a place that is really important uh, from a Berlin perspective. So what you have to report, what you have to say, what you try to do here uh, is being noticed and is being recognized in Germany because this Polish-German partnership is not just important for both of us. Uh, it's also important for the functioning of the entire project of an integrated Europe. Uh, there can only be a strong Europe if there is a strong and functional German-Polish relationship. So that is the, the overriding strategic um, perspective that, uh, that guides Berlin. And I'm quite confident uh, that for the time being, um, the approach of Berlin will be to uh, to take this notion of trying to be a good neighbor to Poland um, and try to make offers for uh, practical, concrete cooperation in various policy fields and to hope uh, that uh, also the Polish side recognizes that uh, this kind of cooperation is actually also in Poland's best interest. Um, I know that electoral seasons are difficult seasons, uh, uh, not just in Poland, but also in, in, in all of our democracies. Um, things get exaggerated. Um, uh, you know, it is a time when you try to, to mobilize, you also try to mobilize emotions. But I think from a German point of view, we will continue to 
to raise our sights and to keep our eyes on on what in our perspective is really important and that is a, a partnership that is close and that moves actually closer to to realizing the full potential uh, of of this neighborhood i would i don't want to speculate on what might happen uh, you know if we if we talk too long about it but but um, uh, to be very honest, I think if you if you paint a caricature um, of your neighbor, um, uh, yeah, it will have an effect over time. Um, but I will also say that uh, this is not just a problem sort of we have to deal with now in Polish public discourse. Uh, it is also true that uh, vice versa, the German perspective of Poland is a particular one and maybe Poland does not always get the attention, the curiosity, uh, the investment uh, that it that it deserves and uh, because we in Berlin we somehow think that uh, yeah it, it either isn't worth the effort um, or it is considered too difficult or it is considered uh, somehow with with difficult positions so it's an investment from both sides that is needed in order to make that partnership work. I'm, I'm very glad that you said that because I think, well, once the, the goodwill is present and, and a lot of can be achieved. And I think it's even, even Krasov said recently on the record that Polish-German relationship would be crucial for, for the future of the EU, especially in the light of the war. And I would like to, to use this opportunity uh, that this is, well, this is after all, not a uh, uh, Poland liberal podcast, but the European liberal podcast to move to European affairs. And you, you, you've been at the top level of foreign policy planning for, for many years. And can you explain to the outsiders, not everyone of our listeners might, must have been following the German policy that closely, the rationale behind the German policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia in the last two decades? Well, I, uh, you know, we we should not. Uh, the, the first point would be that we need to be careful with with the notion of policy planning. Uh, the father of all policy planning, George Kennan, uh, famously said uh, that all his efforts to bring uh, more reason and more long term perspective to policy making have actually failed. So I, I used to joke when I was in this job that uh, everyone thinks you have a crystal ball, but actually all you're trying to do is uh, trying to make sense of the present you live in, and that's already uh, quite complicated. But but that is that's just as a as an introduction. I think you know when it comes to Russia, there has there has been um, sort of ever since unification, peaceful unification of of Germany. Uh, you can go back to sort of the mid 1980s, the mid 1980s, late 1980s. The investment into uh, into the relationship of Helmut Kohl and and Mikhail Gorbachev uh, that uh, that partly enabled um, peaceful unification. There has been this notion that we need to build strong ties uh, with Russia and try to build what Gorbachev at the time called the common European house or common European home. And, um, and even as that perspective sort of slipped away in the 2000s and we realized how Russia was increasingly defining its own future in, uh, in opposition or first without the West, then in opposition to the West, now in confrontation with the West, 
um, there was still a sense that um, you know we we need a mutual investment in order to try to make that relationship more predictable to to you know that and and the logic behind it of course was that if you can invest in interdependence it would create some kind of restraint and what we realize today i think and what clearly we germans underestimated or got wrong on russia is that uh, we fail to see that the russian president no longer thinks in if he ever did in those categories of a primarily economic rationality but that he was increasingly thinking in categories of historical greatness, historical mythology, where the potential economic cost or prosperity cost uh, actually no longer matters to him. So I think one of the reasons why we lack the imagination um, to really see this war of February 24 against Ukraine coming was that we believed it would be self-destructive for Russia to do that, and therefore he wouldn't do it. And uh, now we see that it indeed it was self-destructive. He, he, he destroyed the Russian business model of supplying Europe with Russian fossil fuels, um, but he did it nonetheless because he, he defines his actions in, in different terms. Um, and, uh, and we have to adapt to that. And that means you know, we've neglected our defense uh, so we need to invest more in defense. We uh, we were over-reliant on Russian fossil fuel imports, so we need to change that and diversify our energy supplies and, and push even quicker for the expansion of renewable energy. Um, and we have to rethink, uh, and we do rethink, our support for Ukraine and our relationship with Russia. And all of this has to happen at the same time. Uh, that is what we call, what the Chancellor has called the Zeitenwende, the sea change in, in German foreign policy. If I may, I would make one additional point on, uh, because I know that is sort of controversial and contra controversially discussed also here in Poland, that is the logic of, uh, uh, sort of, of the gas pipelines and, and the energy ties with Russia. And um, yeah, they, I think you will find many people in the German political scene today who will say that is a, that was a mistake. Certainly, building Nord Stream two even after the annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbas was a mistake. Um, but I I just like to briefly point out that there is sort of beyond the political reasoning of trying to create an interdependence that we hoped would stabilize uh, behavior. Um, uh, there was a second reason for that, and that is, of course, that since the 1980s, um, there, there was a, an ever stronger anti-nuclear sentiment in Germany. Um, in 1999, uh, there was a decision of the German government to phase out uh, the nuclear reactors that were part of Germany's energy mix. Um, and then increasingly um, attention in Germany of the, the society that was very sort of climate change conscious, um, the energy of society focused on getting out of coal. But if you get out of nuclear and you want to get out of coal because it's bad for the climate um, and you can't build up uh, renewables quick enough, you need a bridge um, technology, you need a bridge energy. And in the German case, that was supposed to be gas. And 
and gas was available from Russia in large quantities. So that is part of the logic behind it. And because we did not see clearly enough the security policy challenges that came with it, uh, and I would say despite uh, warnings from partners in Central Eastern Europe and elsewhere, um, we we focused on pipeline gas and not on LNG gas, which would have been available, but of course was already more expensive in those days. And and also that is a, is a mistake uh, that uh, we didn't see coming and we have to correct now on the fly and that requires major investments into floating liquefied natural gas terminals that are being uh, built now in, in Germany uh, in, in order to diversify our supplies. But those, I think, so there is an energy policy component um, and, and there's a broader political component to our engagement uh, with Russia. And I would say that we've, we've made our share of mistakes in misreading the Russian president's intentions in underestimating his willingness um, uh, to to be aggressive, to start a war, uh, to go on the offensive. Um, but overall, I would say it was not wrong to try to engage Russia and to build a more stable relationship. But we simply neglected uh, some uh, some important precautions that we should have taken over the years, especially as Russia turned more and more authoritarian inwards and more and more aggressive outwards. Well, uh, basically, Ambassador, you already answered my next question about the uh, policy, energy policy. But I wanted to, 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 to go deeper because, well, these things, they just don't happen by themselves. I remember talking to many policymakers from, from different political parties uh, about the Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2. All of them kind of stress that this is a business project. And I think when you are in, in Germany, you see how many of these kind of German-Russian initiatives, business initiatives are spread. It's not just everyone favorites, uh, former Chancellor Schroeder, but I think there is um, there are more people who are involved in those relations. I think sometimes with the goodwill, sometimes perhaps not always uh, with the enough kind of constraints on, on, on behalf of, of, of Germany vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia. Do you think that this kind of pro-Russian attitude, which can be understood because of also historical reasons, of course. People tend to forget that, at least as complicated relationship between Germany and Russia. Do you think that it, it persists or do you think that war changed everything? Because this war might last for quite long, the, the you know, situation in Russia can evolve. Do you think that that will be maybe not coming back, but come, trying to get back to normal business as usual, or at least containing the this, this current sanctions regime? So. Uh, Germany and Russia can cooperate again. Yeah, that's a that's a complex question, and I will simply start by saying that uh, um, the 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 Russia question and the question of the proper relationship with Russia is is probably not just on a policy level, but also on a psychological level. I would say the most divisive in the in the German Polish discussion. And, and of course, for good reason, because our historical experiences could not be more different in, in that respect. And so the, um, you know, if the, 
if the if the German uh, uh, dilemma is to be the largest country located in the center of Europe, and you have to come to terms with that situation, then the Polish dilemma is its geographical situation, location between Russia on one side and Germany on the other side. And that, of course, is a sort of that's a historical experience that goes back centuries in in the Polish collective memory. So just to say, you know, the, the issue we're discussing here, I'm aware, is broader than the last 20 or even the last 40 years. Um, but I think for that reason, it is important that we we talk about it and we try to make ourselves understood because not everything uh, in these last decades has happened with with bad intention or with complete blindness. There, there were reasons for doing it. So when you look at energy policy, the the pipeline deal with the Soviet Union started in the 1970s and 80s. And it was in those times, it was meant to be a, an explicitly uh, a political project, of course, a business project, but with political implications and political intentions, as I said, trying to engage and through engagement to stabilize an otherwise very difficult relationship. And it worked. Um, and, uh, and the Soviet Union reliably supplied uh, uh, West Germany with, uh, with its fossil fuels. And from there, it was sort of an easy, uh, intellectually, uh, maybe too easy to simply say, uh, we'll do the same thing with Russia as it emerged after the uh, disintegration of the Soviet Union. And uh, we not only continued, we even expanded it. And um, I think it was former minister Sigmar Gabriel who, who said publicly that one of the mistakes Germany made was to mistake Russia as an extension of the Soviet Union and to mistake this energy partnership as an extension of what we did uh, during the Soviet Union years, which was essentially a status quo power, at least in its later decades until its disintegration, whereas modern-day Russia is not uh, a status quo power, but uh, essentially a revisionist and aggressive power. And, and so I think there was a lot of path dependency in, in German actions also uh, that proved to be overly, well, when I say it proved to be overly, overly optimistic, that's probably the, uh, yeah, the diplomatic description. Uh, for, for what happened and for what we're going through now. Now, the question that you asked about um, how much has changed or how much is changing, uh, this, is my, so this is my personal uh, assessment of this. I, I know there is criticism in Poland uh, or doubt at least uh, as to the, the reality of the excitement of the sea change in German uh, foreign policy. And and I can understand that. I and I would say don't take my word for it, but look at what is actually happening. Um, look what's happening in energy policy, where there basically is no longer any fossil fuel coming from Russia to Germany. Uh, look at uh, defense policy, where the German government has committed to um, investing, uh, uh, sort of sort of to to create a special fund. Uh, to uh, resupply the long, long neglected uh, German armed forces, 
um, look at uh, the policy of uh, shoring up NATO's eastern flank, deploying more troops to Lithuania, to Slovakia, um, deploying heavy weapons to Ukraine. Um, uh, the uh, the Ukrainian prime minister, who's today in Berlin, has just said that the the Iris T air defense system is one of the most efficient weapon system Ukraine has received so far, um, which was delivered just a few weeks ago. Um, but of course, Russia policy is part of that sea change. And and I think the chancellor, the foreign minister, they have all been very clear on this. There is no return to business as usual with this uh, Russia, certainly not with this Russian leadership. There is no there is no room for any reliable um, commitments that could be taken mutually with this Russian leadership that has lied into the face of our own leaders uh, too many times. So um, I think it is um, a pretty fundamental change. Um, you know, does it mean that we will never again talk to Russia? No, it doesn't. Uh, Russia is what it is and where it is. Uh, it is uh, one of the two largest nuclear powers in the world. I think there is, there, there are reasons to continue talking to get the signaling wrong, but the signaling uh, is not the same thing as trying to enter into a, a modus operandi of cooperation and expanding cooperation. But having said all that, I know that uh, you know, every call, every every dialogue that happens is viewed uh, with suspicion here. And 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 let me just repeat: I think that re that suspicion has a basis that is that is not just political; it's psychological, and it goes back a very long time. So, um, you know, it is it won't be easy to 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 rebuild that trust or to create. Um, the confidence in Poland and in other places, in the Baltic states and elsewhere, that Germany's policy towards this Russia has indeed changed fundamentally. Um, but uh, but I believe that is what is happening. And uh, there, I mean, the, with with the packages of sanctions, um, eight packages that have been uh, enacted so far. There's very, very little left of a German-Russian economic relationship. There's very little left of a German-Russian political relationship. Uh, there's basically nothing left of a German-Russian energy relationship because the Russian president has destroyed it. And, uh, and, and it's not something you can, you can simply reconstruct. Uh, Ambassador, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that everyone knows about German-Russian policy, but Few people, I suppose, have an opinion about German-Ukrainian policy, and I wanted to ask you whether there is one, and whether in this policy there is a future for Ukraine and the European institutions in the EU, and perhaps also in NATO. I know it's hard to answer now when the war is just so close, but I think this is a question, and not that many people ask themselves, let's say, 1987, and. Uh, a couple of years later, Poland and other countries uh, from the Central East Europe were granted this perspective. So, thinking forwards, do you think that this is realistic to, to, to think about such a perspective? And what is the German-Ukrainian policy uh, right now? 
You know, in my in my previous job as as foreign policy advisor to the federal president, we we traveled. Uh, we even traveled to Belarus. I think in 2018, we traveled to Ukraine twice. Uh, in uh, in in I think in 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 2018, and then again uh, last year for the Babinjar uh, commemoration. But uh, one of the things uh, my president always tried to emphasize was that we need to, as Germans, we need to to place these countries on our German mental map because they they were not sufficiently present there, both with their history, as as those territories where the most terrible crimes of German war and occupation happened. Um, but also in their present, that they are independent sovereign states now after the disintegration of the Soviet Union. Um, but of course, that is a process. You know, you don't change people's perceptions uh, overnight. Um, the exception is if something terrible like a war happens. And so I think whatever ambivalence there may have been in the German perspective on Ukraine, what it is, what it was, what it should be or could be, um, a lot of these discussions have simply been put aside by Putin's decision to attack Ukraine, because by by doing so and by this valiant resistance of the Ukrainians and the way we all try to support them in their struggle for freedom and independence, we we, we have actually we're, we're creating a situation um, uh, after Putin has taken this decision to, to attack Ukraine, where Ukraine is clearly in our camp. And whether we like it or not, but there will be a rather hard uh, line being drawn again across our continent. And Ukraine is firmly on this side, on our side of that line. And I think that is what has informed uh, the decision of the German government and then the entire European Council. Uh, to grant Ukraine a candidate status for EU membership at the June summit. Um, today, as we speak, uh, my president is again in in Ukraine uh, and, uh, and, and voicing his support for not just Ukraine's struggle, but also for Ukraine's aspirations. And, uh, and as we speak uh, in Berlin, the Chancellor and the EU Commission President have opened a, re a conference on the reconstruction of Ukraine. And Chancellor Scholz has made it very clear that we should look at reconstruction in the perspective of Ukraine becoming a, a member of the European Union. So, so I think, you know, we, we live in a, in a period of uncertainty. We all don't know when this war is going to end. We don't know how it is going to end. But but in all of this uncertainty, there is also a new reality that is taking shape. And that reality is that um, Ukraine will be a part of this space, will be a part of this European project of common rules, of integration, of uh, of peaceful cooperation. And uh, and I think that will also inform German policy. It um, so Germany has been slower in providing Ukraine uh, with heavy weapons. There was a complicated debate in in Germany because for pacifist traditions, not to export weapons into conflict zones and many other reasons. Uh, this was this was a, a a complicated debate for the new coalition government in Berlin. But by now, as we speak today, 
Germany is, aside from Poland, Ukraine's biggest supporter in the European Union, not just financially and economically and, and in terms of housing refugees, but also in, in military categories, in, in the dimension of, of military support. And so I think, you know, that process will continue. It will make Poland more central in Europe because the, the center of gravity of that European Union will likely move further eastward. And we will all learn a lot about Ukraine. Germany included. And I think that is pretty much a consensus now in at least sort of at the broad center of uh, of the German political sphere. And uh, and that's a good thing. It's, uh, you know, we have some catch up to do on that. But uh, you can you can see the readiness to do that, not just on the on the political level, but also with a million Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian refugees being currently sheltered and, and housed in Germany. Mr. Ambassador, it seems that Putin's calculation is that the Europeans' uh, support for Ukraine will wane with the falling temperature in their houses. And we saw a lot of wriggling in the last EU Council uh, about the caps on, on, uh, on gas. And Macron, President Macron, has been warning Germany of isolation. Uh, it seems that issue is not quite closed, considering that that might be another uh, Council, uh, emergency Council, coming up. And, but speaking more broadly, what do you think should be the right response, in your opinion, to stop this support for Ukraine uh, from withering in the public opinion uh, in the EU? Yeah, I, you know, I think I think Putin became a victim of his own propaganda over the years. So he had two basic lines. The first is that Ukraine was just a house of cards that would collapse uh, and uh, collapse quickly, and secondly that the decadent West uh, would uh, would uh, simply cry foul for a day and then return to its consumption patterns. And he eventually he believed his own propaganda and uh, and that led him to this terrible miscalculation. But he was wrong on both counts. Um, the Ukrainians have surprised not only us, they have surprised uh, also the Russians with their resistance, with their courage and bravery. And uh, there's now a real perspective that they can recapture uh, occupied territory. And I think on Europe, uh, Putin also miscalculated. You know, the, the point is, liberal democracies uh, don't like to fight. They don't want to waste their, their energy and the lives of their citizens on foreign entanglements. They want to focus on uh, their own matters, they want to focus on expanding prosperity for all. But if you poke them uh, for too long, you actually mobilize them. And I think that is what Putin has done. He, he has crossed a line um, that, uh, that was absolutely in, uh, unacceptable uh, for all of us. And we all understand that we have to stop him and we have to stop him now because otherwise he would simply continue in his aggressive policies. And, uh, and that is why I think there is no going back. I think that's the broad consensus. And then, of course, you come to the specifics of it because, because of some of the mistakes we made in the past, but also because simply, uh, you know, it's, it's not just Germany, but a lot of European countries who imported uh, Russian fossil fuels, Poland included, by the way, uh, to the tune of, of billions of zloty every year, uh, oil, gas, oil. Uh, we all have to reorient our energy sector, 
we all we're all struggling with rising energy prices because we're 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 all buying on a world market that only has um, uh, a, a sort of so much it can it can offer, uh, and if demand is higher, then prices go up. So so I think the um, you know I think you have two overriding goals that are in conflict and that need to be reconciled at the European level. The first is um, we all struggle with electricity and energy prices that are far too high and uh, for consumers, for businesses, for industry. So we need to bring down the energy prices and fast. But at the same time, we also need to secure uh, sufficient supplies for the winter, for next year, and we know that supply is scarce if you uh, if you exclude Russian supplies. And so these two need to be reconciled. So if you put a cap on gas prices, you can alleviate the burden for consumers and for industry. But if that if the result of that step is that uh, those that the suppliers then say, oh, if you don't want to pay that amount of uh, of money for our supplies, then we we will ship our energy elsewhere. Um, then you're you're you know you're you're harming yourself because you're endangering the security of supply. Um, if you if you uh, design a, a price cap in a way that it takes away the incentive to save energy to save gas. Uh, you're also making a mistake because um, we also need to save uh, a significant amount of, uh, of of our gas use, of our energy use through this winter and, and into the future in order to make things work. So all of these different um, uh, uh, viewpoints, all of these competing goals need to be integrated. And I think that's the, you know, that's the, the painful process of political compromise that has happened at the European Council meeting last week that energy ministers are working on now. And uh, yes, and there's also some finger pointing. But on the, yeah, and Germany is not the only country that tries to alleviate some of the burden and some of the pressure by, um, by subsidizing energy costs uh, at home in its own economy. But other countries do that as well. I have, you know, there are lots of national responses. I, I sincerely hope that we can enlarge them to formulate a proper all European response to it. Uh, we have been through that experience with the pandemic uh, two and a half years ago. Initially, all the responses were national. Uh, that created uh, something a diplomat would call a suboptimal solution. Uh, and a, and a, a lot of friction between member states. I think we are in, in a somewhat similar situation now. Every country is struggling to, uh, to adapt uh, to this crisis situation, but we would all be better off if, if we could find uh, a joint European solution to that. And a solution that would combine both, both uh, things that, you, that, uh, that we talked about, um, bringing down energy prices and electricity costs but at the same time securing uh, sufficient supply for the winter. Mr. Ambassador, we will be slowly uh, getting to the end of our conversation, but uh, before I wanted to ask you about uh, in kind of internal German politics, because I must say that from the outside, it seems that the Greens' response to war uh, has been, well, first of all, popular, and on the other hand, just. And 
even Timothy Gartonesh mentioned in the previous conversation we had in this podcast that, well, there is perhaps not enough strategic thinking culture uh, in Germany, but uh, there are some people like uh, Norbert Röntgen, uh, Robert Habeck and uh, Baerbock who, who, and, and the Green Square doing this. And then we see there was an article in, in the Spiegel about the, uh, Robert Habeck who well, we might say that it's kind of like a meltdown of his leadership within his own party and perhaps in the government. And I'm wondering, uh, is that, do you think that uh, it's also difficult to understand for the outsider this kind of nuclear phobia on, on the German side, that you prefer coal to, to nuclear, even though it is very little, I think, chance of tsunami in, in Germany. Can you explain a little bit to, to people who don't follow German politics what, what happened with one of the most popular ministers and what happens with this very uh, difficult issue of, of nuclear power in Germany? Mm. Yeah, well, I, you know, as, as an ambassador uh, to Poland, I should be very careful not to get too deep into German domestic politics, uh, which really is, is, is not my business. But I think what you see is um, for, a, for almost a year now, um, since last December, we have a complex three-party government, uh, first time ever, that you have sort of three different programs, political programs that need to be integrated. Um, and then only two months after they formed this government and they tried, they, they negotiated an extensive coalition agreement that was focused on economic and ecological transformation, um, only two months later, uh, this war breaks out and shakes some of the most fundamental assumptions and tenets of German foreign policy, defense policy, energy policy. Um, so it's quite a it's quite a task, and you can see how leaders of of all the parties, but also the general public, is trying to keep up with the pace of change, with the pace of necessary decisions, difficult decisions that need to be taken. And I think that's true for all three parties in government, for the Greens, for the Social Democrats, and for the Liberals. Um, uh, the Social Democrats with the added uh, difficulty that they own some of the decisions of the, of the, last, uh, of, of the, of the last two decades uh, in, in government. But you also have the Conservative opposition uh, that, of course, under Angela Merkel was responsible for the last 16 years for many of the policies that we need to revisit and, and need to redirect. So all of these parties have the have, uh, uh, you know, have, have, a, have a difficult uh, task of, of reformulating, redesigning policies and, uh, and mobilizing public support for, um, for a new direction. Um, so I don't want to uh, sort of judge the performance of individual ministers, I will just say that th this is an enormous challenge, not just in terms of decision making, but also in terms of public communication, because what Germany is doing, and I've sort of, I've written about that before, because it's part of my own biography, when I was 24, when the wall fell, and I couldn't see it coming. Um, but then over the over the following decades, we somehow thought uh, that we we knew that history was was going our way and that we were witnessing sort of a grand convergence of the entire world uh, according to uh, the German or the European model of, uh, of, of liberal democracy and, and social market economy. 
and uh, it's uh, you know it's a it's a pleasant idea um and but we were slow to realize that uh, uh, this this may have just been a brief moment but but not the not exactly the course of history and uh, and we failed to adapt in time um to a to a much harsher reality of autocratic systems the the continuing uh, relevance of uh, of military power including of nuclear weapons and and that brings me to your question about nuclear energy uh, you know i was not one of those youth uh, in the early 1980s who was uh, demonstrating against uh, nuclear refueling plans and and nuclear reactors being built but the 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 very emotional very intense debate of those days what actually was what brought me to 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 study international relations and in the end to become a diplomat i i was essentially studying cold war in order to find a position of my own in these struggles of the 1980s but i think uh, you know when you think about the deeper sources of uh, of the german anti nuclear sentiment you have to go back to the emergence of the greens in the early 1980s you have to go back to the collective experience of chernobyl in 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 april 1986 um because you won't understand uh, uh neither the decision to exit from nuclear energy in 1999 nor the very um uh, strong public and political reaction to uh, the catastrophe of fukushima in march 2011 if if you don't you know if you don't have this uh, this background um of of the of the deeper roots of history in of this issue in in germany and uh, and so i think even though there have been different differing opinions on on the safety or the 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 benefits of nuclear energy uh, between political parties in germany there has not been a new nuclear power plant built for decades and i find it sort of personally not easy to imagine uh, any any regional prime minister uh, who would go up publicly and say uh, you know in my state uh, there is a place where we could build uh, such a new nuclear power plant i was in gdansk last week and i uh, i also talked about uh, polish plans to to build uh, a nuclear reactor and and the the region uh, of pomerania is is one of the the regions uh, the government is looking at but it seems that there is you know you you have a different uh, social sensibility for the issue so there's not a lot of resistance there uh, whereas in germany i think you would find a very different level of resistance but having said all that i think you have a debate in germany now there are still three reactors running that were supposed to go off the net um in the midst of this electricity crisis that we're facing this winter um they uh, they will likely run a little longer to back up um the uh, the, the german uh, electricity supplies um which i think is a is a reasonable decision but i think um you know the you don't you don't switch um entry or exit from such a complex technology um uh, just like this it it was based on a decades long process 
um, and uh, that has that has much deeper roots. But I, I I've I I was not a part of that movement at the beginning. But I find it difficult to believe that Germany would fundamentally revisit the question of nuclear energy anytime soon. It is, in my view, it is. It is far more likely, and that is actually the program of the current government coalition, to, to use the current crisis to accelerate uh, the expansion of investment and building of renewable sources of energy um, that, uh, that would not only reduce dependence on foreign supplies, but at the same time uh, would also reduce technological risk and make the greatest possible contribution to climate change. Mr. Ambassador, the very last question, uh, a broad one, but perhaps you, you might be able to answer it shortly. It, it's, it's in connection to, 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 to your previous answer. It's, it seems that uh, very much the latest 30 years has been seen through the lens of the Cold War, kind of post-Cold War, post-Marian World reality. And for many, this war brings the end to this era. Uh, I don't know if you agree that something new, some kind of new order awaits us in the future, and if so, how it might look like? Uh, do, do you have this feeling, like in this kind of broad terms, what what might lay ahead of us, and what kind of reality, if not this kind of post Cold War, to which we are uh, so used to? Yeah, I, I well, first I would say, um, um, and, and I've, I've I've tried to trace a little bit the the um, the, the history of that in in the things I wrote, um, I think this notion of the end of history was particularly popular in, in Germany because we felt that after 89, we were finally on the right side of history after having been on the wrong side of history at least twice in that last century. Um, so it had something very appealing. Um, there was also there was one other important aspect that I think is is uh, is often underestimated, but for for a country like Germany that was so burnt by the experience of a of a charismatic leader, uh, you know that who called himself Führer at the time, so where even the the very word and the notion was uh, contaminated, so when we. We have hardly a way to talk about leadership in, in German because of that historical experience. The notion that somehow history would now flow um, in, in, in a predetermined direction and all you had to do as a government was basically administering the inevitable convergence on, on the liberal democracy and market economy had something very, very tempting. It, uh, you know, you were not exposed to the, the risks uh, that we see now, for example, with a President Putin in Russia or a President Xi Jinping in China, um, they, who concentrate all powers in one hand uh, with no accountability. And where any mistake they make is actually a big mistake. And any wrong decision they take is a decision that falls back heavily on the entire population. So just to say, um, you know, it was we we love to believe in um, in the end of history and uh, and that uh, the, the fall of the wall had had somehow solved all of our problems. Um, uh, of course, it didn't. And uh, if you listen to the Indians or others, they could have told you long ago that uh, 89 was a happy moment for Germany, but it was actually not as consequential in other parts of the world. 
So now we're moving on to something new. I think you're right. Uh, do do I know what it is going to be? Uh, no, I I don't know. But I think um, uh, I think that the notion of gradual convergence is gone. Um, we we see a return uh, of great power rivalry. Clearly, uh, we see a reassessment of uh, of interdependence, uh, which we view now much more through a security lens. And then suddenly, interdependence becomes a vulnerability, um, and we want to build more resilience. So we will all revisit our various policy fields in order to possibly pay a security premium to create more resilience in our system. I think it will be a challenge to, to stay open to, uh, you know, the pendulum will swing back from globalization, but it should not swing too far because in the end, trade, investment, interaction, uh, open societies and open economies are what uh, are who we are and what made our prosperity. And, uh, and we should not lose sight of that. But we also need to relearn some of the difficult lessons of hard power um, that uh, sometimes uh, you, know, you need to invest in deterrence. Um, we need to relearn some of the lessons of nuclear deterrence that we uh, sort of forgot about over the last 30 years. Um, and we have to do all that uh, in a situation where we are also faced with planetary challenges. Uh, we've just uh, we're we're coming out of a terrible pandemic, but we're in the midst of accelerating climate change. So so how do we organize what I would call a minimum of cooperation across a globe that is otherwise quite fractured and uh, and locked in? in long-term confrontation and long-term struggle. So we should also not lose sight of that minimum of cooperation that we will need to address some of the uh, uh, some, some of the, the big challenges of the Anthropocene. And uh, but, you know, I, as as I, you know, I, I, uh, I tend to be optimistic uh, and and I think even though I've argued that the future is actually much more open than we, we, we Germans would have loved to believe uh, after 1989. Um, I think we have reason to be to be optimistic. I think there I think what we see in Ukraine, what we see elsewhere around the globe, what we see in Iran, uh, people do not relinquish the idea of dignity and of personal freedom voluntarily. Uh, this is the strongest uh, driving force that is sort of innate in, in human beings. I think that is sort of my, that is my intellectual connection to liberalism. And, and I deeply believe that. I think there is, there are plenty of lessons in history that, that show us that. And that is what all autocracies need to be concerned about, and that is what we should be hopeful for. Um, and that says nothing about uh, sort of the geopolitics of the next year or the next two or five years, but it says a lot about the longer arc of history. Ambassador, thank you for giving us the sense of agency that our actions matter and and the hope that values we we hold so dearly might might eventually not by themselves, not by some kind of rule of history, but by by our action and and well also strategic planning perhaps might bear fruits um, in the future. Thank you so much for being with us at the uh, at the podcast.
Thank you. This is all for today in the Liberal Europe podcast. Please tune in for Ricardo Silvestre next week. Uh, until two weeks, goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.